God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And let's take your Bibles and go to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. What we're going to look at today is the danger of conceit and its awful consequences. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. There is no sin so common in man and detrimental to both his salvation and his improvement in life than conceit. How conceited a man or woman is revealed by how much they will rely on God's word and God's spirit to lead them or not. Hence, all who make decisions solely on their own and see no real spiritual need for either God or others to help them, you can know are conceited beyond measure. Those, therefore, who are filled with conceit will not hold a sincere fear of God and, secondly, will believe that they can be successful in this life without God. Benson on this verse, Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Be not puffed up with a vain conceit of thine own wisdom, as if that were sufficient for the conduct of all thine affairs, without direction and assistance from God, or without the advice of others, end quote. A man's conceit can be so developed that he will not even ask God the way to heaven. Men therefore shall die simply because their conceit was too great to allow them to search for what it will take to live. Wherever therefore self-conceit is, there cannot be any true fear of the Lord. A conceited man will thus have no true fear of God. Hence, conceit will be first visible in a man by the fact that he will truly not fear the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, we read, and this is a chapter that we're going to spend extensive time on today. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. He then who is conceited will think himself prudent in his own sight. Yet whenever there is conceit in a man, there is promised to be the judgment from God. This woe in Isaiah 5.21 is one of a series of woes in which men's sins are seen to produce their own destruction. Where there is conceit, therefore, there will always be ultimately divine judgment. Yes, there are few sins in God's word which will hinder a man's salvation more than his conceit. The foundation of all conceit thus will be believing thyself wise without either God's spirit or God's word to make one wise. Men's conceit without repentance will absolutely prohibit their salvation. As God will save none until they're willing to leave their own human wisdom in order to humbly receive God's wisdom, which is necessary for all salvation. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, we read, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. The pulpit commentary on this. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? Nothing so shuts 
the door against improvement as self-conceit. Woe unto them, says Isaiah, that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Such persons, professing themselves wise, become fools, end quote. How alarming this should be to those who are conceited, that a fool has more of a chance of entering heaven than they do. That inward personal conceit can very easily, if not repented of, block all spiritual improvement and even salvation itself. That most men will not enter heaven simply because of the conceit that lived in them. Ezekiel 28, 17, Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I, God, will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. The proud of heart, therefore, shall be cast to the ground and in the end suffer great shame for their exalted opinion of themselves. It is also only when men seek humility instead of embracing pride that there remains a chance of not being consumed by the Lord's anger. Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek ye the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Do not then underestimate conceit in the human heart, simply because it alone is enough to damn the soul to hell. Jeremiah 50, 31. Behold, I am against thee. And this is the Lord speaking again. O thou most proud, saith the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. So also Isaiah 23, 9. The Lord of hosts hath purposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Men also should not think that their being proud of heart cannot be seen by God. As God will as righteously judge a man's heart as he will judge any other evil action committed by his tongue or body. In Luke chapter 1 verse 51 we read, He has showed strength with his arm. He, God, also has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Lastly, it makes little difference if pride is practiced individually or collectively, as God will judge the few or even the one just as easily as he will judge the many. Jeremiah 13, 9. Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. It is important to understand the magnitude of how much God despises both pride and conceit. For if not, then what we may deem as little in us might very well become our eternal ruin. For very few conceited people know either the severity of their disease or the certain judgment that is sure to come from it. Conceit of heart is one of the great woes in Isaiah that prompted God to remove protection from his people and not allow heaven's light to reach them. A study of Isaiah will reveal that when men are led by individualism, pride and conceit, then God's judgment will come. This judgment will first consist 
of God removing Himself from those He had previously called His people. For any who are wise of heart should not think that the Lord will continue to walk with them. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, now we read, Now will I sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. And this is Isaiah in reference to the Lord. My beloved God hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he, God, fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Isaiah opens up with a song to his beloved God who had a vineyard, which as we shall see, was actually a people who were placed on a very fruitful hill. Great care was taken for the welfare of this vineyard, this people. Great care taken by the Lord to both fence and protect them from evil, as well as God removing all stones or stumbling stones, which could bring hindrance to their bringing forth abundant and fruitful lives. God often defines himself as a husbandman, whose presence is necessary for both man's spiritual and physical well-being. Without God then to protect his people and cultivate good graces in them, the devil will easily destroy them. The intention of God for planting a vineyard was so that it would plentifully bring forth good grapes meant for enjoyment. God thus desired that his people would first become a benefit to themselves and then to others, so that by the lives they lived, others could eat of their profitable spiritual fruit. The analogy then is that when God plants, waters, weeds, and cares for his people, they will be both a blessed and prosperous people. This is always God's will for his people's lives, that his involvement makes their lives better and more advantageous, first to themselves and then to others. Yet regardless of God's intention to bless man, most often his labor has little impact. As carnal men, instead of bringing forth good grapes and good fruit in their lives, will generally bring forth the opposite. Barnes on this verse, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2. Wild grapes. The word used here is derived from the verb to be offensive, to corrupt, to putrefy, and is supposed by Gesenius to mean monkshood a poisonous herb, offensive in smell, which produces berries like grapes. Such a meaning suits the connection better than the subdivision of grapes that were wild or uncultivated. The Vulgate understands it of the weed called wild vine, Labruscus. The Septuagint translated by the thorns, uh, Akathus that were vines in Judea, which produced such poisonous berries, though resembling grapes, is evident. 2 Kings 4, 39-41 And one went out into the fields to gather pot herbs, and he found a field vine, and he gathered from it wild fruit. Moses also refers to a similar vine in Deuteronomy 32, 32-33. For their vine is as the vine of Sodom, 
Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Hasselquist thinks that the prophet here means the nightshade. The Arabs, says he, calls it wolf grapes. It grows much in vineyards and is very pernicious to them. Some poisonous, offensive berries growing on wild vines are doubtless intended here. The general meaning of this parable, it is not difficult to understand. Jerome has attempted to follow out the allegory and explain the particular. He says, By the metaphor of the vineyard is to be understood the people of the Jews, which he surrounded or enclosed by angels, by gathering out the stones, the removal of idols by the tower, the temple erected in the midst of Judea, by the wine press, the altar. There is no propriety, however, in attempting thus minutely to explain the particular parts of the figure. The general meaning is that God had chosen the Jewish people, had bestowed great care on them in giving them his law, in defending them, and in providing for them that he had admitted nothing that was adapted to produce piety, obedience, and happiness, and that they had abused it all, and instead of being obedient, had become exceedingly corrupt, end quote. It is often the case when people are cared for by God and shown that they are loved, that it can prompt even greater conceit in them. As if just because God loves man and would desire to care for him, means that man can do no wrong. Most conceited people also will cling to the truth that God loves them. Even while in pride, they both carelessly and purposely sin against him. Yes, how the sinner loves to talk about how precious he is in God's sight, but never seems to think if the life he is living is pleasing to God. Consideration should be taken, therefore, that whenever divine love is manifested towards us, it should be reciprocated with us seeking to please God more and not by abusing this love to sin against God even more. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. Pool on this verse. I dare make you judges in your own cause. It is so plain and reasonable. What is seen here is God beseeching Israel to judge themselves if how they responded to his blessings was also not worthy of his judgment. Verse 4 now, the Lord speaking, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. The Lord asks what more he could have done for his people in order that they could have brought forth good spiritual fruit in their lives. See, God will do all he can do to both save and prevent a soul from destruction. He will send his prophets to warn men, 2 Chronicles 24, 19. Yet he sent prophets to them, to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. The Lord sending His Spirit 
to show the supernatural power of himself. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we became among you for your sake. And also the Lord sending his son to die for man's sins. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Yet, regardless of God's efforts to make a crooked people straight, most will continue in their conceited ways. God's grace and God's goodness, without men wanting to please God, will not turn them from sin. God put Adam and Eve in a worldly paradise with only one command from himself, yet they chose not to even obey one restriction on their life. See, he who will not allow God to restrict his life will always depart from God. God's efforts, therefore, though he will endure long and hard with people's sins, generally will not prevent them because of their own inward conceit propelling them towards personal destruction. Sinners, because of their independent and defiant carnal natures, will seldom respond favorably to God's goodness directed towards them. Abusing God's love and care simply because they think they know more than God. Verse 5 now. And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And this is the Lord speaking. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. There is always a divine response to a purposeful and willful sin, and it is not the Lord extending more grace. See, there are points in men's lives when they can control their future, when the choice is in their hands to depart from sin. But then there comes a time when God's justice must be executed, so that when God is provoked enough, men's futures are taken out of their hands and placed in God's. It becomes then God's choice and no longer man's on the judgment God sees fitting for the crime. Here the Lord's judgment is that the fence and barrier that he had put around his people would be removed. The Lord emphatically stating, I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down. There is a time then that God's protection of his people from an evil world and an even more evil ruler, Satan, will be removed if men persist in sin. When all that was preventing calamity and collapse will be taken away so that the sin that men have committed will find its way home and they shall be required to reap as they have sown. Benson on this verse. I will take away the hedge thereof. I will withdraw my presence and protection from you and give you into the hands of your enemies. I will lay it waste. It shall be overrun by heathen and infidels and shall no longer bear the form of a vineyard. It shall not be pruned nor digged. 
vine dressers used to dig up and open the earth about the root of the vines. The meaning is, I will remove my ministers who have used great care and diligence to make you fruitful. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will give you up to your own wicked lusts. I also will command the clouds. I will deprive you of all my blessings, end quote. Excessive provoking of the Lord will result in God withdrawing all that he has used to try and protect men. Romans speaks about this. When God is finally tired of people's sin, though he has given them ample time to repent. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And now verse 26 of the same chapter. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And lastly, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. The Lord thus, after much forbearance in dealing with determined sinners, finally gives them up to their own uncleanness and reprobate mind. If men then provoke the Lord enough, he shall be done with them and let them return to their vile and damning nature, a nature which shall surely hasten their own spiritual death. Hence, when God's patience has run its course, he will give men over to the sin nature, which will in the end destroy them. There is no judgment so harsh as this, where God withdraws his ministers, his spirit and his reproof to then let men live as they will. Verse six now in Isaiah five. And I will lay it waste, again the Lord is speaking, it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. No more then will God continue to try and prune sin from men. No more will he dig in the earth to try and cultivate a more fruitful crop in their lives. Nor more will God's rain, which is essential to life, be brought forth from heaven, emblematic of all good heavenly blessings. All work and labor of the husbandman, God, will cease. Once it is realized, the conceit in a man's heart cannot be changed. Verse 6 now in Isaiah uh, Barnes here. I will also command the clouds. It is evident here that the parable or figure is partially dropped. A farmer could not command the clouds. It is God alone who could do that. And the figure of the vineyard is dropped and God is introduced speaking as sovereign. The meaning is that he would withhold his divine influences and would abandon them to desolation. The sense of the whole verse is plain. God would leave the Jews without protection. He would remove the guards, the helps, the influences with which he had favored them and leave them to their own course as a vineyard that was unpruned, 
uncultivated, unwatered. The Chaldee has well expressed the sense of the passage. I will take away the house of my sanctuary, the temple, and they shall be trodden down. I will regard them as guilty, and there shall be no support or defense for them. They shall be abandoned and shall become wanderers. I will command the prophets that they shall not prophesy over them. The lesson taught here, that when a people become ungrateful and rebellious, God will draw from them and leave them to desolation, end quote. It was God's presence that gave life to Israel so that they might live. Without it, nothing but destruction remained in their future. See, once God forsakes his vineyard, which is here representative of his people, all hope of man bringing forth good fruit will be lost. Verse 7 now. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Verse 8 now. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Covetous is Israel's first sin listed. When men, because of their love for earthly things, seek to do all they can to gather the world to themselves. Finding no time for fearing God and worshiping God, men of the world will have as their great aim getting as much of the world as they can. The more independent a man is also from God, the more of the world he desires for himself. No doubt the blind sinner is unaware that he who chooses to be a friend of this world makes himself by his own choice God's enemy. See, those who love the world cannot love God, and those who choose the world as their friend find themselves God's enemy. James chapter 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not, don't you know, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The Lord thus will never be a friend to any who love the world. Rather, he will set himself up to be their enemy. Few believe this, yet is the truth of God's word. Worldly friendship, causing those who were previously God's friends to become his enemies. Those also who have sought to heap to themselves the world without care for God will one day find their souls being taken from them. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And this is Christ speaking. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, as men often do, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, as men often do, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And now verse 20, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself 
and is not rich towards God. How often do men gather all they can on this earth, yet make no time to make themselves rich towards God? Common then it is for a sinful man to put his hopes in material gain, while completely ignorant of the fact that one day God shall require his life to be taken from him. Every man thus shall end his life naked, regardless of how much of the world he gained before his death. Worldly possessions doing nothing to help in gaining heavenly garments that only God can give, making one fit for heaven. Only the Lord is therefore able to give a man a white robe suitable for heaven. Every other garment not provided by God will be considered by him as a filthy garment. Revelation 3.18, the Lord speaking, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. He then, whose main goal in life is to gather only for himself, will suffer great damage to himself. For this world shall pass away, along with all those who sought worldly gain instead of concerning themselves that one day they would have to meet their God. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 9 now. Returning to our record. In mine ears, saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an omer shall read an ephah. Because of God's presence being removed and the clouds withholding their rain, what was once a fruitful land now becomes desolate. God makes all things to grow so that without him they will not. Verse 11 now. Woe unto them, and this is in reference to Israel, that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night till wine inflame them. Ellicott in this verse. Woe unto them that rise up early. The same class as in Isaiah 5.8 meets us under another aspect. In Judah as elsewhere, the oppressors were conspicuous for their luxury. Amos 6, 5 and 6. They shocked public feeling by morning banquets. Not wine only, but the strong drink made from honey and from dates and other fruits, possibly including, as a generic term, the beer for which Egypt was famous, was seen on their tables. The morning feast was followed, perhaps with hardly a break, by evening revel, end quote. Carnal men will, immediately at their waking, proceed to gratify their lusts. This is true of the covetous man, the drunkard, the druggie, and even the thought to be innocent, simple pleasure seeker. What men love is what they will begin their mornings with. If it is not the Lord, it must be the world. So that regardless of the vice, sinners will abandon prayers, meditations, and the study of God's word in order to begin their day with little to no concern with gaining fellowship with God. So that when a man wakes, what he seeks to do will tell you greatly who he is. So that when God then is not sought... And men look for sensual pleasure, you can know they are not spiritual, but are only living their lives to satisfy their earthly bodies. Verse 12 now. 
and the harp and the vial, the tabret, the pipe, the wine are in thy feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Music and drink have no profitable purpose when men use it in place of fellowship with God. A song then that takes the heart away from God should not be thought to be doing anything good for the soul. Music thus will often be used to replace men thinking upon God. So consumed with temporal pleasure, carnal men will find no time for contemplation of God. Any therefore who love the world will not consider God, nor the glorious work of his hands. Again, Romans 1.28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. What carnal and wicked men do not like is to keep God in their thoughts. The carnal nature of a man, when it controls him, will find no liking whatsoever of the Lord and surely will not like to meditate on all the good works God has done for him. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The more then that men love their sin, the less they will take pleasure in God's holiness and desire to consider the operation of his hands. Ellicott on Romans 1.28 did not like there is a play upon words here with reprobate in the clause following which cannot be retained in English. As they reprobated the knowledge of God, so he gave them up to a reprobate mind. Or in other words, as they would have nothing to do with him, so he would have nothing to do with them. End quote. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 13 now. Therefore my people, because of these things, are gone into captivity. Because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst, therefore hell hath enlarged herself, and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. Verse 15, and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. The primary reason that men have not a knowledge of God is because they have quite simply first rejected it. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, we read, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Matthew Henry on this. Both the priests and people rejected knowledge. God will justly reject them. They forgot the law of God, neither desired nor endeavored to retain it in their mind and to transmit the remembrance to their posterity. Therefore, God will justly forget them and their children. If we dishonor God with that which is our honor, it will sooner or later be turned into shame to us. Instead of warning the people against sin from the consideration of the sacrifices, which showed what an offense sin was to God, since it needed an atonement, the priests encouraged the people to sin, since atonement might be made at so small an expense. 
It is very wicked to be pleased with the sins of others, because they may turn to our advantage. What is unlawfully gained cannot be comfortably used. The people and the priests harden one another in sin. Therefore, justly shall they share in the punishment. Sharers in sin must expect to share in ruin. Any lust harbored in the heart in time will eat out all its strength and vigor. That is the reason why many professors grow so heavy, so dull, so dead in the way of religion. They have a liking for some secret lust, which takes away their hearts, end quote. He who chooses not to fear God and hearken to his counsel shall ultimately suffer bondage and captivity because of it. Verse 16 now. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. God shall be exalted when it is also seen he will punish men for their sin and not let it continue unchecked by him. The Jameis Fawcett Brown Bible. God shall be exalted in man's view because of his manifestation of his justice in punishing the guilty. Sanctified, again, that same Bible, regarded as holy by reason of his righteous dealings, end quote. Verse 17 now. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. When men sin against God, what was once man's possession shall be given back to the beasts he thinks himself over. Observe also that it is one thing for other men to take a land which was once ours, and another thing that is left to the beasts of the earth and the fowls of the air. Verse 18 now. Well, one to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, a cart rope. Benson on this verse. Woe unto them that draw iniquity, that are not only drawn to sin by the allurements of the world or by the persuasions of wicked men, but are active and industrious in drawing sin to themselves or themselves to sin, end quote. A sinful man thus will swing his rope far and wide in order to bring his lust closer to himself. Instead of looking for God, the sinner will compass the world searching for more pleasures to gratify himself. Do not then underestimate how much human energy sinners will expend to please themselves and to bring greater sensual pleasures into their lives. It will be much. See, a sinful man differs little from a righteous man in this distinction. What he loves, he will spend great energy to pursue. For a righteous man, this is God and the spiritual realm. For the sinner, it is increased iniquity. Verse 19 now. That say, let him make speed, and these are the sinners speaking here, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Fools who first make a mock at sin will then proceed to mock God, as if God has no power to punish them. It is therefore common for sinful men to mock the Lord, even unto their own death, like the unrepentant malefactor on the cross, who though he was himself at the point of death, was even less ready to receive Christ as his Savior. Ellicott on Isaiah 5.19, that say, let him make speed. 
We have here, as in Isaiah 28, 10 and Jeremiah 17, 15, the very words of the wealthy scoffers of Judah. Such taunts are not peculiar to any age or country. We find them in the speech of Zedekiah, in that of the mockers of 2 Peter 3, 4, in the name of Isaiah's second son. We may properly find an answer to the taunt. The words, the counsel of the Holy One of Israel were obviously emphasized with a sneer at the name on which Isaiah dwelt so constantly. Verse 20 now. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Once sin progresses sufficiently in a person or a culture, then a complete change of values will ensue. Spiritual sin producing men labeling things the complete opposite, as they really are. Men seeking so deep in sin that they will endeavor to influence others that evil is good and good is evil. Listen not then, dear Christian, to what other men as yourself define as either good or evil. For God shall be the final judge of all things and not sinful men who are only objects of his creation. This right belongs to God alone. Verse 21 now. Woe unto them, that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. No man will commit any of the evils that we have read unless first he has esteemed himself wise in his own eyes. And none will depart from either the word or will of God unless they think themselves to know better than God. All sin thus will have as its base human conceit. As none will attempt to change God's laws or principles that God has demanded men live by unless they think themselves smarter for it. God's word consistently warns men not to think themselves wise in their own eyes. Understanding as well that the very first temptation of man was to commit a sin against God that would then make him wiser for it. Yes, those who think themselves wise in their own eyes have eaten of the same fruit as Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, and to what? Make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. There were two main influences that caused the woman to eat. First, that both the tree and its fruit were pleasant to her eyes, teaching us that those who make decisions by what they see can easily be led to sin against the Lord. A conceited man or woman therefore will think that earthly sight is actually sufficient for wisdom. It will also be the devil who masquerades himself as an angel of light who will then tell man that he can be wise without God. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no marvel... For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Pull on this verse. Into an angel of light, that is, puts on the appearance and form of a good angel. He calls them angels of light because they are wont to appear in a lightsome brightness or because of that glory in which they beheld the face of God or because of those great measures of heavenly knowledge which these blessed spirits have. All tempted souls have an experiment of this, 
For none is tempted to evil under the appearance of evil. Evil is being evil, what a reasonable soul cannot be courted to. The devil, therefore, in all his temptations to sin, though his end be to ruin and destroy, yet appeareth as an angel of light, moving the soul to evil under the notion and the appearance of good. End quote. It is this unhealthy appetite in man that seeks to be wise on his own and separating himself from God that allows him to be so easily be tempted by the devil. What Eve saw concerning the tree for what she thought would be able to make her wise came from her searching for a wisdom apart from God. This was the devil's hook and one which both Adam and Eve did swallow. The serpent is also still suggesting the same today and saying the very same things to them as he did to Adam and Eve in Genesis. He does this by transforming himself into an angel of light and then by inferring that God is not needed in order to gain true wisdom, that men can be wise on their own without God. Finishing our study in Isaiah chapter 5, we read now verse 22, Well, one to them that are mighty, to drink wine and men of strength, to mingle strong drink. Barnes on this verse. Woe unto them that are mighty. This is the sixth specification of crime. He had already denounced the intemperate in Isaiah 5.11, but probably this was a prevailing sin. Perhaps there was no evidence of reform, and it was needful to repeat the admonition in order that people might be brought to regard it. The prophet repeats a similar denunciation in Isaiah 56.12. Mighty. Perhaps those who prided themselves on their ability to drink much without becoming intoxicated, who have been so accustomed to it that they defied its effects and boasted of their power to resist its usual influence. A similar idea is expressed in Isaiah 56.12. Men of strength. The Chaldee understands this of rich men, but probably the reference is to those who boasted that they were able to bear much strong drink to mingle, to mix wine with spices, dates, drugs, etc., to make it more intoxicating. They boasted that they were able to drink without injury, liquor of extraordinary intoxicating qualities, end quote. The drunkard, like the fornicator and the covetous, shall find no place in God's kingdom. As he who seeks only to gratify his flesh will not be filled with God's spirit. How a man then lives on this earth whether he is aware of it or not, shall determine his eternal fate. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived as men generally are, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 23 now. Which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteousness from him. When men can be influenced by money in any manner, it will not speak well for them of gaining entrance into heaven. He thus, who is influenced by gain, so that he would break moral character for it, will not find place with God. Men's souls often sold by merely monetary gain.
Verse 24 now. Therefore, the Lord speaking on what his judgment would be, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel, therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. And he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God's judgment is thus declared, because men cast away the law of the Lord and despise the Holy One of Israel, God's anger is therefore seen, and so much that so that he declares it will not be turned away. God's anger kindled so great that not even his mercy will prevent his hand from dealing with men's rebellion. The conceit of man also can be so great that it is unfathomable for him to believe Heavenly judgment is coming in his future. As a conceited man will never really believe that God's judgment will be directed towards himself. Of course, God's judgments upon his life will prove him wrong. Verse 26 now. And he, God, will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. Barnes on this verse. And he will lift up an ensign. The idea here is that the nations of the earth are under his, God's control, and that he can call whom he pleases to execute his purposes. This power over the nations, he often claims, and in sign uh, is the standard or flag used in an army. The elevation of the standard was a sign for assembling for war. God represents himself here as simply raising the standard expecting that the nations would come at once and will hiss unto them. This means that he would collect them together to accomplish his purposes. The expression is probably taken from the manner in which bees were hived. Theodoret and Cyril on this place say that in Syrian Palestine, they who kept bees were able to draw them out of their hives and conduct them into fields and bring them back in with the sound of a flute or the noise of hissing, end quote. We have next the description of the army that shall carry out God's judgment against Israel. It is depicted as strong, without deficiency, and completely ready for its task. Verse 27, none shall be weary nor stumble among them, this army. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed nor the latchet of their shoes be broken, whose arrows, this army again, are sharp, and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Verse 29, Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. Matthew Henry on this verse, Let not any expect to live easily who live wickedly. Sin weakens the strength, the root of a people. It defaces the beauty, the blossoms of a people. When God's word is despised and his law is cast away, 
What can men expect but that God should utterly abandon them? When God comes forth in wrath, the hills tremble, fear seizes even great men. When God designs the ruin of a provoking people, he can find instruments to be employed in it, as he sent for the Chaldeans and afterward the Romans to destroy the Jews. Those who would not hear the voice of God speaking by his prophets shall hear the voice of their enemies roaring against them, end quote. Verse 30 now. And in that day, they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. This is the last verse, and it reveals God's final judgment, that no light from heaven will any longer shine upon those who at one time God planted as a vineyard, with high hopes for them bearing good fruit. First it was the rain being withheld, verse 6, and now it is light. Both are controlled by God's power, and without them all life shall cease. He then, who considers himself wise in his own eyes, should more greatly consider the judgment of God that shall come upon him because of his personal conceit. The conceit of a man or woman, therefore sure to bring upon them both the wrath and anger of God. A terrible end for those whom God wished would have remained humble enough to realize that for a man to be actually wise, he must view himself as a fool first. Something that a conceited person almost always will find most difficult to do. And closing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Amen.